Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. What will it take to stop the plummeting salmon populations in Southeast Alaska? That's the question a coalition of tribes is addressing with their counterparts in Canada and Washington State. Alaska officials briefly closed this year's commercial Chinook salmon season because the numbers are so low. It's a problem surfacing in several places across the state, affecting both the fishing industry and subsistence fishers. We'll hear possible solutions coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled against the Navajo Nation in a case involving the tribe's rights to the Colorado River. Navajo leaders say the decision has significant implications for tribal sovereignty and the ability for the tribe to prosper and grow economically with the use of water. KUNC's Luke Runyon reports. The tribe claimed it was the federal government's legal duty to help them figure out their future water needs and develop a plan to use the river. But in a 5-4 to four decision, the justices said an 1868 treaty included no such promises. University of Utah law professor and citizen of the Navajo Nation, Heather Tanana, says the decision means the burden will remain on tribes to secure their water. The help and assistance and I think the federal responsibility to help and assist would have gone a long way to filling that water gap. More than a third of Navajo Nation residents lack clean water access in their homes. Colorado, Arizona, and Nevada urged the court to side with them and said the case threatened to upend the way the Colorado River is managed. I'm Luke Runyon. A Navajo Council delegate is sponsoring legislation to recognize all marriages within the Navajo Nation. During Pride events last week, Delegate Seth Damon signed and sponsored the legislation to amend Navajo Code so that same-sex marriages are recognized by the tribe. In 2005, the council enacted a resolution which prohibits same-sex marriages. Damon was joined at the signing ceremony in Windorock, Arizona, by Delegate Eugene So, who had introduced a similar bill last year. That bill was never heard due to deadlines and the council's adjournment. The council had passed a resolution to establish Pride Week to be held every third week in June. The resolution seeks to protect Navajo citizens from discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity, and marital status. Jeff Ament of the rock band Pearl Jam and his company Montana Pool Service, along with Nike, have built more than 30 skate parks in Montana and surrounding states. And as Jill Freitas reports, the newest one is opening Tuesday on the Standing Rock Reservation. Ament teamed up with the Standing Rock Tribal Community and Evergreen Skate Parks to create a skate park on Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. Ament chose Standing Rock as his next location, saying it's been a goal of his for a long time. With all of the the history there in the last few years, we started talking to people that we said we started talking to some of the kids at Fort Yates Middle School, and um, it just felt like most of the other projects we just sort of follow the energy, and we were we were really feeling a lot of energy from there. Amen's longtime love for skateboarding started when he was a child on a family trip. I had a cousin who was a year older than me who had a skateboard. On that trip, that's all we did was skate. And um, he gave me a skateboarder magazine and I read it on the way home. And I was like, 
completely infatuated with everything that was in the magazine. Um, it was something that nobody else was doing at that time. Amen says these skateboard parks have been a saving grace to many rural indigenous communities, mainly the youth. We've wanted to go to the most isolated areas and help the, the people in the most isolated spots. And it just so happens that the most isolated areas in the country are usually native, these reservations. And um, I just always think like, what if this would have happened when I was a kid? What if somebody would have just built a skate park? or just done something nice for our community that would have been for the kids. I think if we take care of our young people, then the, the future takes care of itself. We really need to create positive, healthy outlets. I, I just think skateboarding is one of those things. It's creative, it's art, it's sport, it's peer group stuff. I think it's competitive in a really healthy way. The event will include an opening ceremony, skate clinic, a meal, t-shirts, and more. I'm Jill Freitas. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty, it begins with us. Early bird registration is July 28th at NIEA.org. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Today's show is hosted live from Juneau, Alaska. Tribes in Southeast Alaska say the salmon they depend on for both subsistence and the livelihoods of their citizens are disappearing. The numbers are so low, the state originally banned the summer commercial fishing season. The ban was to protect endangered orca that rely on the fish for food but a federal appeals court ruled against the ban and the season is back on. Tribes are hoping to find solutions through a coalition that includes their counterparts in British Columbia and Washington. They're focusing on causes of the crisis, which could include climate change, overfishing, and unintentional bycatch. Today we'll hear from native fishers and others from the region about the state of salmon this year. Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Of course, you can also post on any of our social media pages. Facebook, Instagram, check them out. Joining us first from Juneau, Alaska is Guy Archibald. He is the executive director of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. Guy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. 
You bet. Great to have you on the air, Guy. Also joining us from Metlakatla, Alaska, is Louis Wagner. He is a lifelong fisherman from Metlakatla and tribal rights representative, and he is a lifelong member of the Metlakatla Indian community. Louis, welcome to Native America Calling as well. Thank you for having me also. Absolutely. Well, Guy, I'd like to start with you today and uh, these numbers that we're hearing, these reports regarding the salmon population in the Pacific, really alarming. Just how low are the numbers for the Pacific salmon this year? Well, um, they're very low again this year, and this has been an, an ongoing trend, a very disturbing trend. And even though, uh, you know, many of our communities, not only in southeast, but throughout Alaska, um, salmon uh, fishing has been closed for them. And, and this, you know, this is where they put up their food for the wintertime. And, and it's very, you know, disturbing not only for the communities that rely on, on this level of food security and food sovereignty, but also for, uh, you know, many of our tribal members are commercial fishermen, and so it directly hurts them as well. And uh, the salmon are just an indicator species. We're seeing, you know, ecological kind of collapse happening, you know, throughout Alaska. Oh, this all sounds really dire. Um, where are the numbers the lowest right now in, in southeast, Ala southeast Alaska and, and other parts of the state? Well, it, it varies quite a bit, but uh, what we're really worried about is the species of king salmon or Chinook, or what the Canadians call their spring salmon. Uh, they're the largest of the Pacific salmon, and they tend to be the most vulnerable to changes in the in the Pacific Ocean and in the freshwater environment, um, we often have uh, salmon derbies here in in Alaska, especially the spring king salmon derby, and those have been closed. You know, they've been closing them in Wrangell and closing them in Juneau and and throughout Southeast because there's just not enough salmon left to even support, you know, having a salmon derby anymore. And what we're also noticing is, is not only are the fish disappearing, but the fish that are here are much smaller um, than we're used to. You know, back in the 1980s in Wrangell, you know, catching a 50-pound king salmon was nothing to write home about. Nowadays, we see, you know, salmon under 25 pounds winning salmon derby. And it's, it's disturbing. You know, I go out and fish a lot. And one of the things I always do after, you know, thanking the fish for giving itself up to me um, is I always look in its belly, you know, to see what it's eating. And, you know, the king salmon and the coho later this fall, um, I've just noticed the last couple of years, you open up their bellies and they're empty. You know, these poor fish are, are starving. So it's, it's, it's an indicator of a, of a problem, you know, of, of the entire ecosystem. But it is, it is an emergency. We don't, we have to do something about it now. We can't wait um, for anybody else to try to solve the solution. It has to be done now and it has to be done on us. 
And, and guys, speaking of, of some of these possible causes, can you elaborate more? I mean, earlier we mentioned the idea of climate change, overfishing. Do you see those as the as the main issues here? Or are there other factors that we need to consider with regard to this crisis? Well, it, you know, like everything in a complex ecosystem, there's a lot of causes. It's adverse uh, conditions out in the Pacific Ocean. It's destruction or pollution of the freshwater habitat, you know, on the land. Um, salmon are a very resilient species. You know, there's a reason there's five species of Pacific salmon here in the Northwest where it's, you know, very seismically active, you know, glaciers coming and going. You know, it's a very dynamic area. Um, salmon, you know, like many species, can survive, you know, the occasional hard impact as, as long as it has time to recover. You know, salmon, like any other organism, what they have a real hard time with is constant low-level stress. We know what stress does to our own digestive systems and nervous systems. And this is the same thing going on with salmon. It's a multitude of, of causes. But mm -hmm. the only thing that's going to protect these species from going extinct is genetic diversity, having wide genetic diversity. And all of that genetic diversity is born in the freshwater habitat. All of the little streams and rivers throughout the Pacific Northwest here um, add diversity, you know, to that species. And, and by protecting the freshwater habitat, you know, that's the major thing we can do to help protect Pacific salmon. And Guy, how healthy are those freshwater habitats? Are you confident that you'll be able to protect those enough to, to foster this genetic diversity that you describe as so crucial to the survival of the salmon? Well, right now, uh, the freshwater habitats are in, in relatively good shape. You know, here in, in uh, southeast Alaska, we have the mighty Stikeen River. We have the Eunuch River, Taku. You know, further up north, the Elsick and Sitchuk rivers, these are the last pretty much unroaded, undeveloped salmon river systems left in, in North America. And they are, you know, they're still productive. Our communities still, you know, uh, get by on the salmon that they, can, that they can collect out of these river systems. But they're under threat. And they're under threat primarily from, uh, from the Canadian side of the rivers. These are all transboundary rivers. They all drain from the headwaters in British Columbia down into southeast Alaska. And from the British Columbia side, what we're seeing is literally dozens of huge mining operations either already operating or fully permitted or being proposed in the headwaters of these of these critical rivers and some of these mines would be among you know the top five or ten open pit mines in the world all acid generating all being permitted in british columbia which is a regime not necessarily known for their you know environmental protection especially after the Mount Pauly disaster. Um, and so we're very worried that these rivers will you know, remain 
you know, great freshwater habitat for our Pacific salmon. Mm-hmm. And Guy, w- with regard to the state's response, I mean, how do you feel about that? C- continuing the Chinook season as usual, uh, is that going to be sustainable in the long run? Uh, well, no, it's not. And, you know, we, we have to understand in the state of Alaska, 98.2% of all the fish that they estimate go to the commercial fishing, fishing industry. The um, cultural use of fish, or, you know, I really like the word subsistence, but, uh, you know, the cultural use of fish, the sport fish, and charter fish, you know, we're all, you know, kind of competing for that last 1.8%. And the state of Alaska does not recognize what the federal government recognizes, and that's the subsistence preference. Now, the federal government says that subsistence fishing, people who depend on fish for their caloric intake, should take precedence. But the state of Alaska does not recognize that. It's in conflict with the federal government. Just like the state of Alaska does not recognize the sovereign rights of the 229 uh, federally recognized Indian tribes within its borders. The state of Alaska just kind of refuses to recognize any of this. Well, we are certainly uh, having an interesting conversation today, learning all about this crisis up in southeast Alaska and other parts of the state with regard to the salmon population. We've got Guy Archibald on the show giving us a rundown. Folks, stay with us. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Apaches in New Mexico are marking 150 years since the presidential executive order creating the Mescalero Apache Reservation. The action ended decades of conflict and forced removal, but also confined the tribe to just a portion of their original homelands. We'll mark the Mescalero Apache sesquicentennial and the next Native America Calling. My precious relatives, calling all warriors. It's time for self-care. Fathers, uncles, grandfathers, sons, and nephews all deserve a chance to be at their best to protect their loved ones. Use this checklist to keep track of preventative health services you need. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash men's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the low numbers of salmon in the southeast region of Alaska. Do you live near waters where salmon have traditionally flourished? If so, tell us how their numbers look where you are. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. And a reminder, you can always listen to today's show and other Native arts, music, health, and public affairs programs by downloading the Native Voice One app. Download the NV1 app from the App Store on your phone. 
Right now on the line, we have Guy Archibald, and he is here in Juneau, Alaska. He's the executive director of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. And Guy, before we went to break, you were telling us how the state of Alaska does not recognize the subsistence preference that Alaska Native people have with regard to the cultural use of fish. Only 1.8% of all the fish that are harvested in the state of Alaska are actually used for cultural purposes. So I just want to ask you, uh, with regard to the Transboundary Commission, uh, what tax are you folks taking to uh, push the state to, uh, to recognize these preferences uh, that the Alaska Natives have with regards to, to fishing for the salmon? Well, we're trying to protect, you know, salmon region-wide. I mean, giving, give salmon a chance. They can protect themselves, you know, if, if given a chance here. But what we did, you know, in face of the threat um, from Canadian mining upstream is nine years ago, uh, the Southeast tribes decided to unify together and form this commission and so that we could focus resources and fo focus our voice on trying to protect this freshwater habitat. And what we're trying to do um, is also to unify with the tribes, the First Nations and hereditary chiefs in British Columbia, because these watersheds have to be looked at in their entirety. They can't be divided across the middle by an international border and managed in two different ways like that and, and expected to survive. You know, you just can't cut the baby in half. So what we're doing is we're trying to get one unified indigenous voice. And then within all of these indigenous communities are the solution to not only, you know, uh, helping Pacific salmon, but the climate as well. I mean, here in southeast Alaska, um, our communities, within their oral history, is the stories of adapting to climate change, of migrating when glaciers come and glaciers go, and, and that adaptation. And within these communities are the um, engagement. I don't like to say management because we don't manage salmon. You know, salmon are our brothers. We engage with them. And here in, in uh, I know you're here in Juneau, prior to European contact, there was probably five times the population of people living here in southeast Alaska because the resources are just so abundant. But prior to European contact, there was probably five times more people living here, yet they managed to do it without destroying their resources and destroying their environment. And we need to take those lessons, those methods, that engagement, and we need to incorporate that throughout the way salmon are managed here. We need to respectfully engage with them, not try to top-down oversight manage them. They can take care of themselves if they just are given a chance here. And so that's what we're trying to do. And specifically, uh, SEITC is, uh, wants to take advantage of some new legislation and law in British Columbia that requires British Columbia to respect 
the recognized traditional territories at the time of European contact. And so that includes these watersheds, such as the Eunuch River, that go, you know, now far into Canada. The Southeast tribes must have a seat at that table on how these mines are permitted and whether or not they're even ever developed. Um, this is our land, and uh, mm-hmm. nothing changed about that when that international order was drawn across there. Well, and Guy, I, your, your point there that uh, before European contact, uh, there was a, a population there in what this is now known as the state of Alaska, five times of what it is at present, and yet there were enough fish and everybody uh, was able to, to survive off that and thrive. So uh, obviously, as you describe it, if the salmon are just left alone, they will thrive if they just have the right conditions and uh, the waters are safe for them. So let's go ahead and move on now to Louis Wagner. Again, he is in Metlakatla, Alaska, and he's a tribal rights representative and a lifelong fisherman. And Louis, I want to ask you about what you're seeing there in, in Metlakatla. Are the king salmon numbers all right, or are you seeing low numbers there as well? They've been low numbers. They were a little bit better this spring, and they were a little bit bigger, but up till this spring, and they had a short little bite here, that people going out trolling in our bay to get a fish to take home, and and like Guy says, the stomachs have been empty, but now with the salmon fry coming out, they have they have something to eat. There's been a lack of. Um, Caring for for them during the winter, which they mainly would feed on. Earlier, we heard Guy mention, uh, you know, the, the days of the fifty pound salmon uh, are just not what they used to be. What's a typical size uh, fish that, that you see right now? It's the same as what Guy Guy mentioned there. Lucky to get a twenty five pounder. Most of them are on sixteen to eighteen pounds. If you get a small one, usually um, shake them off to try to get the bigger one. Mm-hmm. And are you seeing a population decrease as well as the smaller sizes across the board with the different species of salmon? Or are some some species doing better than others right now? Well, no, they seem to have, they're all declining. And there's, you know, a lot involved here. Mm-hmm. Our problem started when, when that Bruce Jack mine up on the Unique River was working. And, you know, we didn't know it was even operating up there because we go up there, you know, I've spent my life up on the Unique River, and it's just, you didn't think anybody was up above, above us across the border there. But there's that Bruce Jack mine going started sometime in the mid to later 1990s and and by two, 2000 the salmon and, and the oligan were declining and was my son and I when we go up to hunt was wondering where the debris was coming from plywood 50 gallon drums floating down in other debris and for the longest time, we didn't know what, where it was coming from. 
and here to come find out later, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game knew what was going on up there. They, they flew over the mine several times and, and seen where they were dumping their tailings in that lake up there, and then eventually the runoff from, from all their toxic waste was just running right into the river. And we see, going back a little while, going back. Well, Louie, really, uh, so, you know, you're echoing these uh, comments that, that Guy made earlier with regard to to these mines there on the Canadian side and, and just the, the devastating effects that, that you're seeing from those. But I also understand that uh, you have concerns over waste from cruise ships as well. Can you talk about that? Exactly. They used to have to go offshore three miles to empty their waste tanks. And now, as soon as they leave Ketchikan, they get off the end of um, Penick and Congress Narrows there. And they're just, you know, half a mile from an Ed Island, and they're, they're pumping their waste tanks out. They come right into our bays, our shores. And it's, it's not, they, you know, Coast Guard told me they call it gray water, but it's more than gray water. There's paper floating and whatever else is coming out. And I've heard the same from my friends up in Wrangell, Alaska. It's doing the same thing, and then it's affecting, you know, for me, I know the fish can't clear their gills from that waste that's in the water. They need pure, clean water, and it affects our, our shellfish. We can't harvest our shellfish. It's all toxic. Even for myself, my wife and daughter, we got PSP and paralytic shellfish poisoning. And daughter wound up in the hospital, almost didn't make it. And so since then, we've been very reluctant and to harvest their, our clams and cockles. Holy smokes, it used to be, you used to go by the R in the month was the way the old folks taught us. As long as they had R in the month, they were safe to eat, but mm-hmm. not now. It's, um, but I know that's affecting the salmon also because they need clean water to go through their, their gills, you know. Water is life, I don't know. Just um, the big money just kind of controls everything, but, the heck with the villages well louis listening to you and guy today and we've done other salmon shows as well and we've had folks talk about the impacts of, of climate change and overfishing and now you know we're learning about these mines in canada as well as cruise ships and i mean one just has to ask is there any agreement uh, overall in terms of what's causing the fish numbers to decline or is it really just kind of check all of the above all these different factors weighing in together and creating kind of a perfect storm that's really just adding to this crisis that's impacting the salmon population. Yeah, I think all of it is is adding to it. You know, we don't have the snow on the mountains we used to have for the runoff, keep the streams cooler. The glaciers are gone up up on the Unic River where we had glaciers that kept the water cool and a little more water in the river. It's just such a small and shallow river. It's um, just makes it really, really tough for for the 
whatever the salmon or hooligan to go up there and, and do do their spawning business, you know. And but I remember as a kid growing up in the fifties, you'd go over to Catch Can and there'd be snow in the middle of the road plowed up into April. Now you don't see that, you know, you get a little bit of snow in the winter. Mm-hmm. Last winter was the best snowfall I seen in our area here in um, southeast. So that's a lot of us taking a toll. Too much of the, the herring have been taken. The, the whales are um, struggling to get get their food. You know, I can see them from my living room windows here. They're right out amongst the, the rocks and the islands there, in very shallow water, smashing their tails, trying to stun the fish to get get something to eat. And it's just um, we don't have that winter herring anymore. So the impacts with some of these other species of of, uh, of sea life, the whales and, and other types of fish, I mean, these just have far-reaching implications. And I, I want to go back to Guy Archibald. And, and Guy, again, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about our listeners and, and a lot of the folks that we have that, that tune into the show are up in Alaska, but we also have a lot of listeners down in the lower 48. And you know, I think a lot of us are just kind of scratching our heads in, in terms of, you know, what, what can be the solution? I know earlier... You mentioned making sure that the the fresh waters are, are well protected, but w- what more can can Native Voices accomplish, especially working through uh, your commission, the Indigenous Transboundary Commission? Well, you know, when we say that there's you know a lot of different causes at work here, you know, the, the bottom line is that the cause is is over extraction and consumption of resources, whether it's oil and gas or metals, none of this is sustainable. None of this is sustainable. And the way it was done, you know, prior to, you know, uh, European people coming here is that, one, they, they, things weren't viewed as a resource only for, you know, human consumption. All of life was viewed as being a relative, as being a brother or a mother or a father to us human beings. Um, and, and uh, you know, harvesting was done with respect. It was done with ceremony. Uh, the first fish to come in, to come back to spawn, were allowed to go up the river. And, and, and uh, you know, very careful track was kept of the number of fish and it was all you know you know regulated by people who live directly on the waters and you don't have that anymore we have regulation coming from anchorage or washington dc people that have absolutely no skin in the game are making decisions here and you know in the indigenous way of looking at it you take only what you need only what your family needs and you share if you get, you know, if you're able to get out there and you have the boat and the fuel um, to get fish, then you shared it with people that did not have that ability. Um, and, and you did it with, you know, with acknowledgement that your actions today can affect your great, 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 great grandchildren seven generations out and and that's the definition of sustainability. You know, are we preserving the same um, 
opportunities for our great-great-grandchildren than we have here today. And quite frankly, you know, the worldwide extraction of resources and consumption, it's not sustainable even for a couple generations. And, and there's finally kind of coming to that realization, and hopefully it's not too late. Low salmon numbers in southeast Alaska and other parts of the state. That is our focus today on Native America Calling. And we sure would like to get some calls going, especially from any of our listeners up in Alaska, especially southeast Alaska. Again, today's show is being hosted live from Juneau, Alaska. So let's get some folks to chime in. Let, you, let us know what you think, what you see. Maybe you fish or maybe you're involved with the commercial fishing industry, perhaps, or maybe you're just very tuned in to the issue of salmon in Alaska. Let us know. Let us know what you see, what you think maybe some of these causes could be, and more importantly, perhaps, what could be some viable solutions going forward to sustain the salmon population so it thrives. Give us a call. Phone lines are open. 1-800-996-2848. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our conversation on declining salmon populations in southeast Alaska. If you have a comment or a question you'd like to contribute to our conversation, call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. One of our two guests today, Louis Wagner, is joining us from Metlakatla, Alaska, and he is a lifelong fisherman and a tribal rights representative. And Louis, I want to ask you, how much of the economy in Metlakatla, in your community there, is reliant on salmon? Well, almost 100%. It's been a fishing community since the town was built, I think, around 1867 by my grandfathers and the other grandfathers. And um, I'm sitting here in my living room looking at our, our fishing boats right now. They're getting ready to go go out to the fish when they do open it. And Louie, I'm, I'm thinking about the young people in your community. And, you know, obviously you grew up on the water, you grew up fishing, it's part of, it's in your blood. But what are your concerns for, for the next generation going forward uh, with their livelihoods and their culture being at risk with regard to this crisis with the salmon? Well, if we could just start managing everything better, you know, manage the rivers, not pollute our rivers, not overtake, especially on the herring, where it's so important. It, it feeds, you know, the halibut come in when the herring are here, and the salmon, and the draggers are hurting us really big time. Now they're even hurting the, the king crab fishermen up in um, 
the Bering Sea. And it's just, they've worked their way from the East Coast all the way around to the West Coast, and it's like farmland. When they go through, like a desert. So they take way too much. Their bycatch is terrible. I've attended meetings on hatcheries in, in California there, and they Jesus, 20, almost 20, 23 years, they, they've been, um, I've been involved in it, their bycatch is just too much, they were tracking the hatchery fish, you know, and I don't, I don't know about the, I think the wild Pacific salmon also, especially the king salmon, and the majority of that is just shoveled back overboard so they can keep going. There's stories on how the observers are being treated. It's just management. Got to have better management. Mm -hmm. Well, Louis, you mentioned a hundred percent of the uh, Metlakatla Indian community economy is relying on salmon. So, what does that mean there for your people going forward? If uh, if these fish just aren't there, how how will your people survive? Uh, with these vastly changing conditions? Well, we put up a lot of fish, you know, for the for the whole year. We, we try to go to where the clams might be good. We, we live off the land and the water mainly and try not to have to go to the store for just for your staples, you know. And, but we do have a, a nice new clinic here that, that staffs a lot, a lot of the fishermen's wives, you know, so, so that helps them, but a lot of us, like me, I rely, I relied on fishing my whole life. Now, you mentioned better management. Okay. Through the and state Louis, of Alaska, they, they, they've just been against, like, like I said, they've been against preserving the way of life up here. And you also stressed how, how you would like to see better management. And could you tell us, I mean, what does that look like exactly, better management? Does it mean um, regulating it more severely uh, with regard to commercial fishing than it is now? And what does that look like? How could that be accomplished? They seem, they appear to do, you know, a good job on the on the salmon. Let me get back to the herring. They've been wiped out, overfished the herring down South of us here, near the Canadian border, we used to have a, a big herring spawn down at Kashyyyk. Well, that lasted for, I don't know, maybe 15 plus years until it was just depleted. And they're just barely coming back now. And now Sitka is the last place. And they're overfishing that. And it's so important to all of us, you know, the commercial fishing, the subsistence, even the charter industry, without without the herring out there, there's really nothing left for the for what's out there to eat. The whales, they they really relied on the herring when they would show up in the spring. You know. Mm -hmm. We keep hearing this over over and over again today: the, the overfishing, over extraction, and some of the challenges that are created. So I want to go back to Guy now and. Guy, I know you're also working in addition to Alaska Native communities there in the state. You're also working with Native communities in Washington State as well as First Nations people there in Canada. 
And th this question of overfishing, um, are all of these different tribal groups on the same page? Or do you feel like your your interests are well aligned with, with some of these First Nations people in Canada, as well as Native people in the lower 48? Or is there are there some disconnects there between some of these issues with overfishing and overextraction? Well, it's, uh, you know, we're just kind of beginning to kind of deconstruct the colonialism that's been going on for the last 350 years in this, in this region. And, and what that colonialism did was, was basically divide everything up into all these false, little categories. So you have states and provinces, you have nations, but then you also have things like the Pacific Salmon Commission that's just looking at the Pacific Ocean. You have fish and game, Alaska fish and game habitat that just looks at the fresh water. And, and everybody's only looking at their tiny little piece of the puzzle and they're trying to regulate that piece, completely ignoring the bigger picture. And the indigenous people of the region, of course, recognize that everything was connected and everything is, you know, there is only one picture of creation. And we're all seeing, you know, um, this crisis. You know, unfortunately, uh, two months ago, we had a large summit in Washington state where we brought together, you know, tribes and First Nations throughout the region. And we heard from a, a, a young woman from the interior um, of British Columbia, and she stated that salmon only exist in their stories now. She's never seen a salmon come to her land and her community. And that, that is very disturbing. I mean, that, that image that salmon should only, you know, uh, occur in, in the stories and the mythology um, is, is very disturbing. So I think, you know, in general, you know, the tribes and uh, First Nations, you know, we're, we're on the same page. We're seeing the same thing. But, you know, we're also dealing with a, a million other issues. Um, you know, tribes, you know, fighting for their rights. You know, here in Alaska, they're, they're landless. They're trying to get land back. You know, tribes running communities, doing everything from plowing snow to running the drinking water um, treatment plant, um, just trying to keep their communities viable and make opportunities for their young people. And and so it's tough. It's 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 hard. And and then you know during this time of the year, of course, everybody is should be out on the land and on the water, you know, collecting their foods. So it's. It's kind of hard to organize. It's kind of hard to act as one, but that's what, you know, this commission, you know, was formed, you know, to try to do. And I did want to, you know, mention that, you know, our commission is a group of, of 15 tribes, you know, recognized federal tribes. And I'd like to name them real quick because that's, you know, it's in the community where all the solutions lie. But we're a coalition that consists of the Yakutat Clinkett Tribe, Central Council of Clinkett and Haida, Douglas Indian Association, Sitka Tribes of Alaska, Petersburg Indian Association, Ketchikan Indian Community, the Organized Village of Saxman, the Organized Village of Cape, the Organized Village of Kassan, 
Heidelberg Cooperative, Cooperative Association, Craig Tribal Association, Matlakatla, Cloak Indian Association, uh, Chilkat Indian Village, Wrangell Cooperative Association, and we're trying to, uh, you know, link a lot of the First Nations and hereditary chiefs together as well. Um, because, again, you know, the solution is here. The problem is here, and the solution is here. And we just need, as, as Louie mentioned, you know, to incorporate, you know, better management. And we need to break down all these false lines that we've drawn in the water. None of these lines are natural. They're all man-made constructs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my okay. philosophy is, is that, you know, you're just removing yourself from the consequences of your own decision-making. Um, we need to be, we need to have skin in the game. Well, Guy, thank you for sharing the, the names of those partners that are also uh, engaged in, in these negotiations and these efforts that uh, we're talking about today. Let's go to the phones now. We've got Stanley, who is talking with us near a fish camp in Bethel, Alaska, listening on station KYUK. Good morning, Stanley. Good morning, and it's a beautiful day as usual. As long as the wind's blowing, our fish will dry. Yeah, we're in a highly regulated fishing area for subsistence fishing. I never thought I'd see this day. Um, they give us like 12-hour openings now, and we've had three openings so far. And um, all the elders used to look forward to good weather, and they don't want to cut fish when it's going to be raining the next day or but, um, yeah, all this topic you've been talking about, they, they all make sense. It makes common sense. It takes common sense to understand the problem, and it takes common sense to fix it. I mean, the draggers, the draggers, the miners, they're the problem. They create, they create it. Um, the fish swim up river. To spawn, they hatch, and they go out in the ocean and dodge the bullet for how many, however, however many years they spend down there. The chums like four years, and the kings up to seven years. They dodge the bullet, and then they come back up river to spawn. And some, most of them, I think most of them, are called incidental bycatch. Oops. Mm. I caught a salmon. I'm not supposed to catch that. We can't keep that dumped over the side. That, right. what, compared to what we catch, compared to what they dump over the side, that is ridiculous. I mean, there's a 45,000 king salmon um, cap, bycatch cap, cap, and then they got a slow down or I don't know what they do. They monitor themselves too. That's ridiculous too. Um, and they manage their own fisheries. Jeez. They created a monster when they created their own um, North Pacific Marine Fisheries Commission or Council. Okay. The uh, state of Stanley, Alaska can't... 
Yeah, Stanley, we're running a little low on time here, but I really appreciate your call. And uh, again, also for pointing out this whole issue with the incidental bycatch and how no, those numbers really add up. And I, I want to go back to Guy before we wrap up the show. And Guy, when I checked into the hotel here in Juneau earlier this week, uh, I had to sign or, or initial a little document that said, in addition to not bringing a pet, and not smoking in the room, I also would not process fish in my hotel room here in Juneau. And I thought that was interesting. I've never had to sign a waiver like that before. Is that pretty standard here in Juneau? And how does an issue like that weigh into what we're talking about today? Because obviously there's a lot of folks that are coming here from all over the world to fish. Yeah, yeah, and you'll see that in your rental car agreements. You know, please don't clean your salmon in the back seat of your rental car. And that, that's an indicator of, of, you know, how important fish are, but it's also an indicator of another issue we have, is we have uh, tourism fisheries. We have these charter people coming in, they're out of state, you know, under their out-of-state permits, they're allowed, to, I believe, to retain two king salmon and, and one halibut. Yet you'll see at the airport them going home with 10, 15, 40-pound boxes of fish. Every time I bring my boat back into the dock here, I got a fish and game guy standing at the dock checking my cooler to make sure I'm staying within the limits. You never see those fish and game people at the airports checking these charter people. And they, they quite frankly admit they don't because of all the money that charter and sport fishing brings into the state. And that's just another way where you know, the money economy is getting in the way here of, of over-extraction. You know, it, it can't all be just about money. It's, it's about respect for these species. And I imagine there's an issue of balance here because on, on one level, I mean, you appreciate the tourism, right? You appreciate the fact that folks are interested in coming here and supporting your economies, but they need to do it respectfully and in balance. Is that right? Um, yes, and there's there's got to be limits on everything. You know, the idea of an economy based on continuous growth is, is a false construct. The idea that the cruise ships can just be coming bigger and bigger and dumping, you know, 1.5 million people on the streets of Juneau, Alaska, population 30,000, you know, um, there, there's got to be limits. And, okay. and uh, right now, you know, we got to limit the ability to profit. All right, folks, we have reached the end of our hour. I want to thank our guests, Guy Archibald and Louis Wagner, for enlightening perspectives on salmon populations in southeast Alaska. Join us tomorrow as we take a look back at the establishment of the Mescalero Apache Reservation 150 years ago. Until then, have a great rest of your day. I'm Sean Spruce. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not gonna be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities.
For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.